I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, about a very famous man, about a man that Jesus said, no man born of a woman can ever claim to be greater than this man. A man by the name of John, you know him as John the Baptist. Look what he says in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. It says, Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Are you the Christ, or do we look for another? Welcome to the greatest of men who had his valley of doubt about what his life was all about. Are you he that should come, or have I given my life to something in vain? Are you he that should come, or do we look for another? John had played a very prominent role, as we all know, in the Gospel. He's the last in the long line of prophets, all the way back from Abraham, Samuel, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all the prophets... He's the last in a very long line of prophets that spoke of the coming Messiah. But to him was given the unique privilege of seeing, not just prophesying about, but actually seeing the one that the prophets had spoke about. He actually saw and he actually got to introduce this long-awaited one to the nation of Israel. All the prophets and the law prophesied unto John. He inherited all the promises, especially as we will see Isaiah. And all the hope of everything the prophets had said before him burned within his heart. And he has the unique testimony from the lips of Jesus that he's the greatest man that was ever born of a woman. How is it that this same John in the dungeons of Herod, how could he have ever entertained the doubts that he expressed about the one he bore witness to? What happened to his bold, his courageous faith that caused him to question what he had so fervently proclaimed before? What caused his disillusionment and how on earth did he end up in a dungeon like this? How did this happen? The one who was used to wide open spaces and preaching to multitudes out there in the wilderness is now in the confines of some narrow dungeon where his voice is silenced. Well, you know how he got there. He attacked Herod. He boldly proclaimed to Herod that it was not right, it was not lawful for him to have his brother's wife Herod knew that John was a holy man, he knew that John was a prophet, and he feared John, that his wife Herodias despised him. 
If it had not been for Herod's fear of the righteousness of John, Herodias, his wife, would have moved him to have him executed immediately. But because Herod does fear him, he puts him into prison and keeps him alive. But how many know one of the hardest tests for anybody to pass is the test of waiting? How many discovered that? How many figure that God just doesn't move quick enough? Anybody? How many fact think that God really takes a year or two long most of the time? How many think that God should respond much quicker to your cries and to your prayers? Time takes its toll when you have a promise of God burning within you and it never comes to pass and all your circumstances seem to contradict. Time takes its toll even upon this mighty man named Elijah. Because when you put the facts together, he's been there for nearly six months in this dungeon. And in six months, there has been no word from Jesus. No word from the hope of Israel. Jesus failed pastoral ministry. He didn't do prison, prison visitation. No visit from the Messiah came. The wrong had not been vindicated. Herod still ruled the world land with his wicked wife Herodias by his side. Rome still controlled the world. When is Jesus going to act? When is he going to show up? Doesn't he know the preparations we've given? When is he going to act? When is he going to show up? Everything about John's life and calling is highly unusual to say the least. His birth was extraordinary. You know that his father was a very old man man named Zechariah and his mother was a very old woman named Elizabeth and you know that this is another Abraham and Sarah story. It is well beyond their ability to have children at this age, yet they are praying. Zechariah is a priest and he has to go and it's his turn to do the incense inside the temple. And while he's in there, he has this mighty angelic visitation. Gabriel himself appears to Zechariah with an outstanding promise and a message from the Lord. You have to appreciate that there has been about 400 years, four centuries of no word from the Lord. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, folks, it's pretty dry. It's pretty barren. There's no Holy Ghost activity until the New Testament opens up. And the Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, appears to Zechariah with an outstanding promise and a message with this word. Your prayers have been heard. Your old barren wife named Elizabeth is going to bear a son. And when that son is born, don't call him after your name. He's going to get a new name. You're to call him John. This child is ordained to be great in the sight of the Lord. And listen to this. He doesn't have to wait to get filled with the Holy Ghost. He's going to be filled with the Holy Ghost right from his mother's womb. That's good stuff. This is no ordinary child. 
His life would be the fulfillment of an old anticipated prophecy that Elijah is going to return. This child that's going to be born is going to go in the power and in the same spirit of Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And he is going to make ready a people prepared for the long-awaited Messiah. What a prophetic word over an unborn child. This is powerful stuff. What basically God is saying through His angel is the hopes of the centuries, the prophecies, the longings, the prayers, the cries of generation after generation after generation after prophet after prophet after prophet is all coming down to this moment in history and your supernatural child that is born gets to introduce the whole thing to the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise. How many would say that's pretty mighty? That's pretty extraordinary. Well, Zechariah, he's an old man. And he can, can't believe it. When he's been praying, anybody here guilty of praying? And when God answers, you say, I don't believe it. Anybody, anybody guilty of that? You pray and you pray and you pray and you hope and you fast and you seek and you pray. And you pray for so long that you're used to nothing happening. When God says, now it's time, you say, I don't believe it. Well... That's Zechariah. He doesn't believe it. So as a result, the angel says, you will be left dumb, unable to speak, until the promise is fulfilled. I don't know if Elizabeth was happy with that or not. (laughs) But he can't speak until the promise is fulfilled. He can't communicate with words. It's sign language, it's charades, it's writing down on tablets. Within a short time, the miracle happens and Elizabeth, the old woman, conceives and is with child. Six months after she conceived, as you know your Bibles, the angel goes to visit another young virgin this time named Mary, who happens to be the cousin of Elizabeth. This Mary, by the overshadowing of the Holy Ghost, was to bear the Christ child, the long-awaited Messiah, the hope of Israel. The angel told her of Elizabeth's condition and Mary makes haste to visit her cousin. And when cousin Mary meets cousin Elizabeth, something supernatural again happens. The yet unborn babe, six months in the womb, that babe that would be known as John the Baptist, says he leapt, he leaped in his mother's womb. So I guess at six months it is a child leapt in the mother's womb simply by being in the presence of the yet unborn Jesus. Well, the day arrived when Elizabeth delivers her child. This miracle child to a woman of such old age brought great rejoicing. Eight days later, it's time to circumcise the infant son and you're going to name the child at that point and everybody assumes it's going to be called Zechariah after the father. But Elizabeth said, no, it's to be John, as the angel had instructed. Everybody is perplexed, so they motion to the old man named Zechariah. What's he supposed to be known? And he gets out a writing tablet and it says, his name shall be John. And as soon as he wrote that word, John, the Bible says, his tongue was loosed. 
He began to speak, but he just didn't begin to speak. The first thing that comes out of his mouth when his tongue is loosed is yet another flowing prophecy about what this child is. Listen to this prophecy. This prophecy showed how the fulfillment of all the promises made by God in times past was now upon them. This miracle child named John was commissioned by God to be the prophet of the highest, to prepare the people for the arrival of the Lord. Indeed, a powerful and an awesome privilege, a responsibility was the destiny of this very unusual child who would be filled with the Holy Ghost right from his mother's womb. He would never have to later have an experience. He would grow up right at birth with the influence of the Holy Ghost upon his life. Unusual child indeed. The Bible says he grew over the years. He became strong in spirit. He remained in obscurity in the deserts. He didn't grow up in a family life, so to speak. His parents probably died not long after he was born because they were quite old. We don't know for sure. But he's out there in the wilderness in a solitary life being nurtured by the Holy Ghost which he had right from the womb. And the Bible says he stayed out there in the deserts for 30 years until the time of his appearing came. There in the deserts he immersed himself in the calling that was upon his life. He studied the scriptures as he knew him and we know that he gave himself and devoted himself to a life of prayer and fasting. 30 long solitary Years later. How many know 30 years is a long time? How quick do we want God to move? How quick do we want to enter into our ministry? 30 years of preparation. And he has the word of the Lord and the time of his appearing arrives. The many intense years of preparation are now released in some of the most fiery preaching you've ever heard in your life. None has preached like this man in the hearing of Israel for centuries, I am sure. Now Jesus was living a nice family life in Nazareth. And John had grown up in the wilderness. And he begins to preach out there in the wilderness. And the preaching of John in the wilderness, we know, according to Jesus, that was a sign to Jesus that is about time for him to commence his father's business. Jesus had been in preparation for 30 years as well. But John's preaching was the sign to Jesus that indeed it was time for him to be about his father's business. He knew that the ministry of John the Baptist was sent from heaven. Remember he asked the people... The baptism of John, was it from men or from heaven? Jesus knew that it was from heaven. All the people in the country knew that John was a prophet. John is strongly, anybody who has, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he can only see one thing. He's focused. He, he, he's just, he is just focused on this one purpose for his life. 
He openly heralds his message. He goes public, and boy, when he goes public, he goes public. There's nothing hidden about him. His message is simple. His message is this. The long-awaited, the expected kingdom that has been prophesied for centuries, the hope of the nations, the hope of Isaiah, the hope of Ezekiel, the hope of Daniel, the hope of Jeremiah, the hope of Samuel, the hope of King David, the hope of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the hope that we have been waiting for for not just centuries, but millennium we've been waiting for. It's at hand. Wow. It's at hand. This is the moment in history. And you get to be alive to see it happen. This is powerful stuff. But, he says, since that's the point of history we're at, you need to prepare your heart for the king to come. You don't want him to come. You don't want these promises fulfilled unless you are prepared for his appearing. You need to repent. You need to prepare your hearts for the introduction of the king. You need to wash yourself. You need to cleanse yourself. Because when he comes, he's the king of righteousness. And that's the way it's going to be played. It's righteousness. And you don't want to be unrighteous at this moment in history. And so he's calling the whole nation to righteousness. He's calling the whole nation to repentance. Then he even borrowed a a, a symbol from the, the tabernacle, from the temple. Whereas before they went into the holy place, the priest would have to wash in this labor to prepare them to enter into the presence of the Lord. He borrowed that right and he starts baptizing people in water in the sign that you have to prepare yourself. You have to declare yourself right, declare yourself prepared by baptism. It's a sign that you are preparing your hearts for the one who is coming. His preaching brought people by the thousands. I mean, this had been like wildfire across the nation by the thousands. Everything about John was unusual. His dress was unusual. You know, he had a raiment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his loins. What did he eat? Locust and wild honey. I can just imagine this hairy man standing in the river with honey dripping off his lips and locust and stand in the river and say, repent. I mean, can you just see this picture? I mean, this is highly unusual. I mean, this has got everybody's attention. He is intensely absorbed in his mission and his message. The effect of his preaching spread like wildfire across the entire land. The multitudes were tired of religion. The multitudes were tired of tradition. The multitudes were tired of dry and boring church. They were tired of this. And now when you get this strange phenomena happening that's very much out of the unusual, that catches your attention, and you have to make a decision. This of God or not? Well, it's nothing like your usual church, that's for sure. Can this really be God? And the multitudes were drawn to it because they were empty in their soul, in their heart, over the religion that the nation had experienced for decades and centuries. The strange birth 30 years ago, and now this forceful proclamation of the imminence of the kingdom, it set their imaginations on fire, it set their expectations on fire, 
it set their hopes on fire and the nation became alive with desire. Well, people flocked all over the country. You should have been there to see it. I mean, you should have... You know how many people went from Jerusalem out there in the wilderness? Can you imagine the city emptying itself to go hear this preacher in the wilderness? I'm sorry, not just Jerusalem, but it says all of Judea. I'm sorry, not just Jerusalem and all of Judea, but from the other side of the Jordan River. They flocked by the thousands. There was no airfare too expensive to go to this place. This was a revival. This was a move of God. Strange and as bizarre as it may have seemed to a lot of people, this was a move of God. And it attracted people from all over. There was no expense, no hardship, too difficult to go hear the word of the Lord because everybody is hungry for the fulfillment of God's promises. As a result, many of thousands of people were baptized by John in the Jordan River confessing their sins. This is no small movement. Well, John, you should hear this guy preach. My goodness. If I preached like this, you wouldn't come back. I'm sure you wouldn't. Fire burning in his bones. He fearlessly addresses absolutely everybody. He demands that you repent, and he demands that you show proof that you're repenting. Oh, when the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to his baptism, you should have heard him. He minced no words. He was angry at their false. He was angry at their inerrant self-righteousness. He's not afraid to expose their shallowness, their mistaken superiority. With indignation, he tells the religious traditional people that you are, unless you repent, judgment is coming down on you. He minces no words. He even calls them a generation of vipers. Whoever warned them to flee the wrath of come could have saved their breath. That's what it says if you translate it out of the Greek language. Whoever warns you people about the judgment of God should have saved his breath. It's pretty straightforward, don't you think? Lip service is not good enough. You need to demonstrate your repentance. The King of Kings is coming and you've got to be right when he comes. Let undeniable proof be brought forward so that everybody can see you're really repentant. He uses the strongest language to denounce their false teachings. Obviously, he wasn't popular with the religious crowd. For sure. He predicted the overthrow of their religion, their power, their system of belief. He said already the axe is being laid to the tree, and every tree that doesn't yield good fruit, it's going to be cast down, it's going to be cast into the fire. And then he says, and you think I'm tough. You think I'm demanding. Wait till you meet the one I'm introducing to you. He says, my preaching and my demands are mild compared to what's coming. The one coming after me is mightier than I am. He has more inherent power. He has more inherent strength. His appearance is so mighty that John said, I don't even consider myself worthy to undo the latchet of his shoes. If my preaching results in the baptism of water, what do you think is going to happen when he baptizes not in water, but he baptizes in fire? What do you think it's going to be like when fire immerses you? His winnowing fork is in his hand. 
He's going to thoroughly and intensively purge the floor. He'll gather the true wheat, but he is going to burn with unquenchable fire all the chaff. There is no possibility to escape when he shows up. You might run from me, but you're not going to run from him. Therefore, repent. Boy, this guy's into it, isn't he? This guy believes his mission, and he's really into it. His greatest anger was at the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees. But if you weren't a scribe and a Pharisee, you didn't get away with it. If you were just an ordinary person and you had two coats, he says, what kind of person are you to have two coats and that person has none? He says, you need to share what you have with those who don't have. You need to consider those that are less fortunate yourself. Well, prove yourselves worthy of the king that is coming. You can't be living and hoarding stuff while the rest of the world is starving. Prove yourselves worthy of this king that you say that you love. You publicans, you tax collectors, only collect what you're supposed to collect. Don't go lining your own pockets. You soldiers, Don't act with violence towards anyone. And don't go on strike. Learn contentment with your wages. So he preached that every class and segment of society, you need to live out your faith. And you need to prove your faith with a corresponding lifestyle. Man, this guy was hot. This guy was preaching. This guy was making demands. He stirred the excitement of the weary masses. The entire nation under his preaching was brought to a high level of expectancy. Some people even said he must be the Christ himself, which he quickly denied, though he said when he comes, he's going to be more powerful and forceful than me. He lost himself in his office. He lost himself in his message. And when they said, are you the Elijah that should come? And even though he knew that it was prophesied over him that he would come in the spirit of Elijah, when he was asked, are you the Elijah? He was a man of such humility that even though he knew that prophecy was true, he instead identified with an obscure verse out of Isaiah. He says, no, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. He could have said, yes, I am the man in the spirit of Elijah. But no, the man's humble. He said, no, I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Well, John has to decrease and Jesus has to increase. And then the time would come in the providence of God that as adults, 30 years later, Jesus and John would physically meet face to face it happened at the Jordan River God had spoken to John and said I'm going to give you a specific sign and when you see that sign you will know the one who is the promised Messiah the one who you see the spirit coming upon him and remaining that is him And the people came to John by the thousands being baptized. But one day there's this one that came to John. And it's Jesus, who some 30 years ago, John leapt in his mother's womb in the presence of yet an unborn Jesus. Jesus had nothing to repent of 
But like the rest of humanity, he was going to prepare himself to do his Father's will. The baptism of John was a baptism of preparation. For everybody, it was a baptism of repentance, except Jesus. But it was a baptism of preparation to submit to the righteousness of God, to submit to the call of God to live a righteous life, to commit himself to unreservedly doing the will of his Father. He presented himself to John for baptism. Of course, John is hesitant to baptize Jesus. But in order to fulfill all righteousness, he submitted to it. And then the sign that John said he would see, it happened. The Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, came and settled upon Jesus. A voice from heaven accompanied that sign, declaring that this is my beloved Son. And John heard it. John knows who Jesus is. There's no doubt that John knows who Jesus is. The hope of Israel has now finally been manifest. And now that God has publicly identified who He is, it's time for John to back off and time for Jesus to increase. Jesus has been revealed as the long-awaited Messiah. Well... To this point, John had been gathering disciples around himself. Two of his most notable disciples, one was named Andrew, and another was named John, both who traded their allegiance under John's direction to Jesus. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, and John, who wrote the Gospel of John, as in James and John. They were first disciples of John the Baptist. Then they became disciples of Jesus. When John had taught his disciples and disciplined all his disciples in prayer and in fasting, and he taught his disciples to pray, and he taught his disciples to fast, and says, you get yourself ready for the appearing of the Lord. Well, it's time for him to fade into the background. Jesus, indeed, is gaining popularity. As a matter of fact, Jesus decided to steal what John was doing, and he himself started baptizing people in water. Jesus and his disciples as well. The nerve of that Jesus, can't he come up with his own sign? But he takes the, what, what Mark John's preaching, the baptism. Jesus likewise started baptizing people to get them prepared for the manifestation of the kingdom. Well, John had his enemies, and they tried to get this jealousy going between Jesus and John. Don't you know that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing more than you are? I love his answer. He's, he's too much of a man to be moved by jealousy. It was his purpose to introduce Jesus, not to overshadow him. And so, rather than be offended, now listen carefully, John was not offended at Jesus becoming more popular. He said this, that no man can receive anything except it be given to him from heaven. Christ is the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. I just rejoice to hear his voice. He must increase, and I will gladly decrease. Isn't this a remarkable man? How many like John the Baptist to be your pastor? Maybe not with that kind of preaching you would. <laughs> I mean, but what a remarkable, humble man. 
that he is. And Jesus is increasing. John is decreasing. But the fact is, Jesus and John are in this together. For a period, they're both going to preach at the same time. And they're both baptizing people out there in the wilderness at the same time. So when Jesus starts his ministry, when John, he's just going to kick this up another gear. Boy, if there's ever time to be faithful and really proclaim it. I mean, the thing started, it's been initiated. Let's really go. And he gets going so big that he even attacks Herod. Can you imagine he's going to take on the political people now? Even Herod cannot escape this judgment of this preacher. He specifically identified his sin publicly. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This is against the command of God. Well, his wife, Herodias, would have put the Baptist immediately to death. But Herod was a strange man, and he secretly admired this fiery preacher, wanted to hear him preach, but never would let it enter his heart. And so the Baptist life was saved because Herod feared the man. Besides, the multitudes thought that John was a prophet and to have him executed would not be a good political move. And so, John goes into the dungeon where day after day after day after day, week after week, month after month, time slowly passes by. In that cold, damp dungeon, probably chained to the wall, in these narrow confines and time just drips by slowly this thing called doubt arises in the heart of even the greatest of men born of a woman even John John had devoted himself to this moment in history It was the moment that the kingdom of God was to appear. It was for the cause of righteousness that he was suffering in chains. But where is the fulfillment of the promise of God? Where is the kingdom? Why is God not moving? Why is he disappointing? Why is it not yet manifest? Why do you announce this moment and the moment has arrived and the Spirit has been poured upon him and it's all moving and why is there not action? But probably the greatest difficulty for John was this. Why doesn't the promised one even acknowledge that I'm in prison? Church, there has been no word from Jesus to John. Six months go by. And Jesus is even in the area. He is close by. And there's not even an acknowledgement from Jesus about John's condition. 
I don't know if he failed Pastoral 101 in Bible school or what. There's not even an acknowledgement from Jesus that John is in prison. Is Jesus disinterested? Does Jesus not care for this servant who has sacrificially given his life for this moment in history? Jesus, where are you? How is it that Herod still rules? The Roman legions are still in force. Don't you think it's time for the Messiah to display his power? Don't you think it's time for him to vindicate the covenant people of God? Don't you think it's time that the enemies quit winning and we get some victories now? Don't you think it's time? Where is the appearing? Where's the fulfillment of the promises? The glorious, glowing promises painted all through the pages of the Old Testament. And Jesus is giving no indications of doing any of it. Where is the expected manifestation of what he's supposed to be doing? Boy, talk about deep questions. Talk about turmoil in the soul. John's alone. He's used to being alone. But he's in a dungeon. Has he mistaken? Was he wrong? Had he been mistaken concerning the identity of the Christ? Was it really the voice of God he heard back there at the Jordan River? Was that really God speaking to him? Had he allowed himself just to be swayed by the emotional outburst of the people and the swelling of a revival movement? Did he, was he just swayed by emotion? Was that really God that he heard? Had he been mistaken? And then he begins this horrible thought, if I have been mistaken, then I have led literally thousands of people into deception. What a struggle is going on in his heart. And if that wasn't enough, you should hear the reports he was hearing about Jesus. When his own disciples would visit him, they would carry reports about Jesus. You know that one you talked about? You know, that Jesus? Yeah, what about him? I wish he'd show up. Well, you know he's a glutton and a wine-bibber, don't you? John. did not eat he did not drink but this Jesus eats and drinks what kind of church is that that's not the way we do things a glutton and a wine bibber as a matter of fact he hangs around with all the unrighteous people that you're calling to repent you're demanding they come across with signs of repentance and this Jesus he parties with them he even eats in the homes of the Pharisees the people you condemn he goes to their home and he eats with them as a matter of fact Jesus you hear the story was in the home of a Pharisee and a known prostitute off the street comes in and starts kissing his feet John Nothing like you 
whatever. As a matter of fact, John, you've taught us to fast and pray. And the disciples of Jesus do neither. Can you imagine what's going through his head? Can you imagine the depths of despair? Had he been wrong? Had he led the hopes and the expectations of the nation astray? The Bible says in Proverbs that he's fainting in the day of adversity. He's in a dilemma. He seeks an answer. He is in agonizing despair. So he gets two of his disciples and he says, I want you to go and find out where this Jesus is and ask him this question. Are you he that should come? Or should we be looking for another? If you could read this in the Greek languages, we should, be, should we be expecting a different kind? Because Jesus, you are not performing according to my expectations. You are not using my approved methods. Anybody been disappointed that God has not lived up to your expectations and not done things the way you think he should do it? How many had the party plan? He doesn't show up. Are you he that should come? Or should we be looking for something different than this? None of us can appreciate the depths of what's going on in that man's heart and that soul. He knows. He heard the voice, this is my beloved son. He knows he heard that voice at Jordan River. He knows that he had pointed Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He knows And he's told the whole nation to prepare for this moment. And when this moment comes, this this hope of the nations, this hope for centuries, when it does arrive, it doesn't look anything at all like what he expected it to be. Jesus is not performing according to his expectations, and he's not using John's approved methods. Mm. Two disciples loyal to John find Jesus. And Jesus is busy ministering to a crowd of people. Miracles are taking place. Now please note, as mighty as a man that John the Baptist was, he performed no miracles. You are aware of that. He never prayed for the sick. You don't see blind eyes opening with John. You don't see the deaf hearing. No miracles in the ministry of John. Just powerful prophetic preaching. These disciples of John find Jesus ministering miracles. The blind were receiving the sight, the deaf were hearing, the lame were walking, lepers were cleansed, even the dead were being restored back to life, and the poor had the gospel being preached to them. These signs regularly followed Jesus. I can just imagine these disciples going to Jesus. You know, someone's just raised from the dead. Um, 
excuse me, do you mind if I interrupt you for a minute? I have a question for you from, you remember John, the one that you haven't even acknowledged? The one who gave his life to talk about you and to get this nation, and you haven't even acknowledged that he's in prison? He has a question for you. And they just saw, just saw somebody raised from the dead. Are you the one that should come? Or do we get this wrong? Should we be looking for something different than what is happening here? Do we look for another kind? I want you to notice this. <laughs> when you and I cry out to God, most often He gives us no direct answer. How many wish He would? He gives no direct answer. He gives you a bit of a parable that you've got to mull over. And hopefully as you mull over the parable, something happens inside your soul. He gives John no direct answer. He says this. Just go back and tell John what you see and what you hear. Tell him blind people are seeing Deaf people are hearing, lame are walking, lepers are cleansed, yeah, and even the occasional someone being raised from the dead. Just go tell them what he sees. What kind of an answer is that? And the disciples of John uh, go back to deliver this confusing answer to John. And as they leave, he says, oh, by the way, and tell John this, blessed is he who doesn't get offended in me. He wasn't offended when Jesus was getting more popular than him. Oh, by the way, tell him, blessed is the person who doesn't get offended when I don't act according to their expectations. Because I choose to do things different than what you're used to. Blessed is the person who doesn't get offended. Blessed is the person who doesn't get upset about how God runs the business. Interesting, isn't it? Well, they go back to John with this strange answer. Couldn't Jesus just give him a more direct answer than this? You see, the wisest thing that Jesus can do for us when we've got questions is to drop a portion of truth into our soul and let us have to wrestle with it until something happens in our soul you see John needed a fundamental change in his perception about the kingdom of heaven and he needed a fundamental change in his understanding about the king just like Elijah in whose spirit he came Elijah required adjustment remember he had to go for 40 days in the strength of that food and and he saw the wind and the fire and the earthquake and God wasn't in it but he was in the still small voice And Elijah found the voice of God where he didn't expect to find it. So John the Baptist has got to go through some fundamental changes in his perception. He needs to understand how God will accomplish his purposes. And he's got to understand the heart and he's got to understand the mind of God. How many know you could be a powerful man of God and still be misunderstanding the heart of God? How many know that's true? You could be a powerful man of God and be understanding as to what God is all about and what he's up to. So the two disciples go back to John with this report. 
And John would have to think alone there in the dungeon about what he had just heard. And what do you mean, blessed is the man who doesn't get offended? He hasn't even acknowledged that I'm in prison. My whole life has been devoted since I was born for this moment, and I don't even get an acknowledgement from him. He's going to have to reflect on the answer that Jesus gave. And here's, I believe, the lesson that John needed to learn. Yes, the Messiah will judge. Even Jesus could preach harshly to the scribes and the Pharisees. Yes, he will judge. But he would rather forestall judgment to give time for compassion. I'm going to say that again because this is the word of the Lord. As we are waiting for the manifestation of God's purposes and God's promises and what we perceive to be God's will for us, the word of the Lord is this. Learn compassion. Learn mercy. Learn to put off judgment. Learn to put off criticism and become love incarnate because that's what this world needs. That's what this city needs. That's what this unsaved nation needs. Not criticism, not judgment, but it needs compassion and it needs mercy. And that is more important to God than judging people. Thus saith the Lord. And when John had to say, well, what, tell John what you see and hear, and he has to think, and then he would go back to the prophet Isaiah that he knew so well because he identified himself as a voice crying in the wilderness. He would read scriptures like, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the meek, sent, up, sent me to bind up the broken heart, proclaim liberty to the captive, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Quotes what you and I know as Isaiah 61. Now, when Jesus quoted that in Luke 4, if you compare Isaiah 61, you will notice when Jesus quoted it, he stopped short of quoting the part about judgment. You will notice that. Judgment will come later. But his mission is mercy. John would think of Isaiah 35, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame man will leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb will sing, and in the wilderness shall waters break out in streams in the desert. I wonder what he thought when he reflected in Isaiah 42, where it says to open blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I wonder what he thought when he reflected on that scripture from Isaiah. Have you ever been brought to a place in your life where you have to reevaluate what you believe? Or how the ministry God has given you is going to be fulfilled? Or what shape it's going to take? And to realize that God will not work according to our expectations. And he will not work according to our approved methods. He has his own will and his own agenda. And we fall with him. He doesn't fall with us. You could say amen.
fearful thing to say amen to that, isn't it? You know, he has to reevaluate everything that he believed about himself, about his own purpose, about his own gifting. He has to reevaluate the whole thing. Yes, God will bring judgment, and yes, God will spare, but judgment is a strange work to God. He would rather have mercy rejoice over judgment and John was all about judgment when he comes boy it's going to be with fire and he's going to clean the place out and he's going to purge it and going to burn it all with fire and Jesus is too busy having compassion on people to bring judgment he'd rather give space for repentance you see there is an imprisonment that's far worse than a prison cell when a person's soul is held captive by anger bitterness Unforgiveness, that is a far worse prison than being in a dungeon. Far worse prison than being in a dungeon. And this is where Jesus is going to set captives free in their souls and in their hearts. Was John wrong in his perception of Jesus coming to purge the nation? No. Even Jesus would denounce the hypocritical Pharisees and Sadducees in language no less forceful than John's. But I want you to note, while he did pronounce judgment, he did save Nicodemus. He did save Joseph of Arimathea. The primary mission of Jesus is to seek and to save that which was lost. The kingdom of heaven is first and primarily a spiritual kingdom, working for renewed hearts that have been conquered by the love of God. Only when people have spurned the grace of God and hardened themselves will they know the judgment of God. That was the answer that Jesus gave. Go figure it out for yourself, John. Re-evaluate your scriptures. Re-evaluate. The problem is that you are interpreting the whole Bible by your gift. You're interpreting the spiritual life of a church by your vision and by your burden. You've got to see the bigger picture. You've got to get all the parts. Don't judge the whole by your part. God's a big God. Learn to see through his heart rather than your own gifting, rather than your own burden. Learn to see through his heart. John looked for vengeance, but Jesus first brought mercy. Hallelujah. Fire drill. I told you he baptized in fire. <laughs> Hallelujah. John had not lived his life in vain. He had not given his life to a wrong cause. He did not lead the multitudes astray. The fact is, he needed adjustment in his soul, in his perception of what was going on. You know how he met his end. You know Herod's birthday party that the daughter Herodias danced that sensual dance. And he orders John's execution. You know what? When Jesus told the disciples of John, go tell them what you see and hear. And the disciples went away. The next thing that Jesus did is he preached John's funeral. He gave a eulogy for John. He didn't visit John in prison, but before he was dead he gave a eulogy. He said, what did you expect to see? A reed shaken with the wind? No. You see, John was not a man who just bent according to public opinion. 
Whichever way the wind blows, that's what I'll do. That's politicians. No, he's not a reed shaken in the wind. What you expect to see, a man clothed with soft raiment? That's a reference to the people in the, the palace of Herod, whose job is just to flatter the king. You think he's here to give you flattery? No, it's not the case. What did you expect to see, a prophet? He says, no, a more than a prophet. He's more than all of these things. This is the man who is the messenger of God, filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb, sent to prepare the way of the Lord. He's the embodiment of the prophecy of Elijah before him. The law and the prophets were unto him. All men born of a woman, never risen to greater than John the Baptist. And John had this privilege of being the man who opened the door from the Old Testament to the New Testament He had that unique privilege. And he introduced multitudes of people into the new covenant, into privileges of a new testament, which John himself never partook of. He allowed you and me into privileges that he never experienced. How many know it's far better living in the New Testament than the Old Testament? How many know that you and I have access into the very throne room of God and we have a faithful high priest and you and I can go any time. Nobody in the Old Testament, including John, had that privilege. And he introduced, and he says, least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Yes, we go through discouragement and disillusionment. Yes, we go through things we don't understand. And God hasn't worked to our expectations I wish God would give us a straight answer, but often He doesn't. He says, just look what I'm doing. Tell John what you see and you hear. We're not wrong, we're not led astray. But the most important thing is to learn mercy. Compassion. Mercy and compassion. And let God figure out how to run his own business. Let us lay down our expectations of what he's supposed to do and when he's supposed to do it. And let us learn mercy so that we can catch the very heart of God. So what did John do with that message? He died with it. His body and his soul were brought into rest. And Jesus said, No one greater than John the Baptist.